Hello, hello, hello. Whenever and wherever you are listening to this podcast, welcome. This is the Indulging Curiosity Podcast. I'm Camille, and I've created this podcast to share and explore the random knowledge that I enjoy learning about. So stick around, and let's have some fun. Well, hello, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Indulging Curiosity Podcast. Today, we are talking about mycoremediation. What is mycoremediation? <laughs> well, I first came across mycoremediation through Pinterest, believe it or not. You know those fact-first, scientific, if you didn't know, now you know, pins that pop up every once in a while? Or it could just be how I have my feed cura- curated. Uh, but that's where I saw it, and I decided to look it up, and basically it is the use of mushrooms and fungi to clear toxins from the environment. It's used in a multitude of situations. It's very eco-friendly and much more effective and affordable than most of the other like types of um, remediation techniques that are out here. So a lot of those revolve around uh, chemicals, containers, and isolation. And of course, as we all know, because of all the leaks that happen, none of that is foolproof. Now, while I'm not saying mycoremediation is foolproof, it is definitely more effective. So um, they what you use, what might mushroom or fungi that you would use differs for the situation you're trying to clean up. For example, um, after the California fires in 2017, eco-activists worked with the local government to set up, um, they're basically hay bales, round tubular hay bales, they referred to as wattles in the article I read, um, and they filled it with oyster mushroom starter, and uh, they used that to try and catch any runoff and filter the, it through so there's like asbestos and plastics and other harmful toxins and chemicals that were left after the um, bigger things were removed and disposed of. You still have the little things in the ash that are left. So they put those um, hay bales throughout and tried to funnel the runoff through all of that before they reach the waterways to help protect the environment and the trees and the birds and the plants and the uh, fish that live and other animals that live in the water uh, from the negative consequences of the chemical runoff. And I believe it was actually quite effective too. Um, let's see. Anywho, um, basically how it works, I looked that up as well. The runoff, or the, um, what is it called? What is it called? The root system. That's the words I'm looking for. (laughs) The root system. I'm sure there's another more technical term for it, but I... I'm not trying to get a degree in this, so we're going to go with the root system. So the root system of mushrooms um, is what releases enzymes into the area 
that then turns or converts the, um, neg the toxic chemical into one that is inert or at least far less harmful. And um, unfortunately, or yeah, unfortunately, but fortunately for the people who study mushrooms, um, people don't really quite know exactly how all mushrooms work. Like I said, they use different mushrooms for different types of toxins. So um, there are mushrooms that span the entire gambit of possibility in this world. There are mushrooms that have DNA that look or look nothing like anything that we have on earth that we're aware of. Like it uses compounds. It's composed of all kinds of stuff that very, very alien. However, they're on the other spectrum, there are mushrooms that are so close to human DNA, you would actually have a reaction if you were to eat it. I personally am not a fan of mushrooms, but I do find them fascinating. Um, they're also studying how mushrooms um, repopulate, I guess, regrow, uh, shoot back up every season. For example, um, fire... There's the morel breed genus group of mushrooms and fire morels are what pop up. Um, I know for sure there's a bunch of them that pop up in like this valleys, these valleys in Montana every summer after the um, fires go through there, the brush fires. And um, there, no one knows where they come from, how they grow, what their growth cycle is. They have never been able to successfully start fire morels or recreate the growing um, conditions of the fire morel in a lab. So I think there was one person who managed to do it once based off of an actual, like from the wild set of morels. But then when they used the ones that they grew from the first set, it didn't work. Um, so uh, then there are also people, two, from what I've read, two different camps of, of foragers who harvest mushrooms. Some say you're supposed to cut them cleanly near the base and others say you can just rip them out of the ground and it's fine. No one really knows. Um how best or what's the least harmful way to harvest them because a lot of mushrooms are just absolutely mis absolutely mysterious little fungi uh so california used oyster mo oyster mushrooms um to help with their situation however for fukushima and chernobyl different set of mushrooms were used for those um, two accents. I think with Chernobyl, they just happened to be uh, examining the site years later and found the mushrooms growing happily <laughs> over the area and uh, took samples and noticed that all the um, toxins were in the mushroom itself while the, the ground that the mushrooms were in were actually fairly cleansed. So that's interesting. Um, I want to be able to give you specific names, but in all honesty, it seems that the mushroom, if the mushroom isn't edible, 
there isn't an easy to say home name, like with the morels or the oysters, just the long tongue twisting scientific Latin name. And it doesn't really mean much to me as I'm not trying to eat or grow or use mushrooms in any way. So I didn't bother to learn them. However, I can, I have definitely left um, all of the information that I looked up in the show notes. So you'll be able to do look that up if that's something you're interested in. Uh, so the toxic mushrooms, the now toxic mushrooms are disposed of in fairly easy ways. You can burn them, um, is the, I believe most common way. Um, and then, you know, if you burn them, they're much smaller, uh, footprint than giant barrels of toxic sludge. No, I think this is a really cool thing. I think it's also likely to be far more cost effective than the overly complicated, not as thorough nonsense happening now. That's for sure. So why aren't we doing more of these? Um, it's literally a win-win-win on every front. Money, environmental, and time. And I guess you could also, you know, um, have a little fun growing mushrooms. They have mushrooms uh, growing kits now that help you um, learn more about mushrooms and grow your own mushrooms. Um, so if you're interested, check them out because they're fascinating and as, as I said, I'm not really looking into eating any mushrooms. I do not like the texture at all, but some people do. A lot of people do. So that's what I learned about mycoremediation today. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or if you want to reach out, you can best find me at my Instagram account, which is at indulging underscore curiosity. That's I-N-D-U-L-G-I-N-G underscore C-U-R-I-O-S-I-T-Y. Please give me a review and share so we can get as many people listening, learning, and satiating their curiosity as possible. And until next episode, stay curious. Thank you for joining me from wherever you are in the world. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and hopefully learned a little something interesting too. Make sure to follow me on your chosen platform and sign up for notifications of new episodes. It would also be awesome if you shared the podcast with people you think would enjoy it as well. If you want to say hi, check out my Instagram at indulging underscore curiosity. And until then, stay curious. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Indulging Curiosity podcast. So today I had something else entirely different planned from what I'm doing today. Today I am talking about Mongolia because the other day I really, 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 really wanted some Mongolian barbecue. And that got me thinking about the country and um, also... There's a, a metal band called The Who Band, spelled H-U, um, and I've been jamming out to their music ever since I first saw them on uh, YouTube, so um, I've just been like kind of thinking about that, and um, so I thought, you know what, let's do Mongolia. I'm interested in that right now, and so here we go. 
capital of Mongolia is Ulaanbaatar, and Mongolia is actually located above China, but below Russia. It is huge. It's literally the biggest country um, in the world. I think Iran is the second largest country, uh, according to the Wikipedia article I read. <laughs> um, they speak Mongolian, which is part of the Mongolic language family, which I'm understanding to mean that there is no other similar equivalent language outside of Mongolia. They have lots of different dialects, um, depending on, you know, the area of Mongolia that they live, but for the most part, it's all just Mongolic language family. They use the Cyrillic alphabet. Uh, we usually see that with uh, Russian and other Slavic languages, but um, there's also been a push to go back to using traditional Mongolian script uh, in addition to the Cyrillic uh, script for official documents and stuff, which I think would be really cool. I think it's really cool when you have a language that is as old as Mongolian and you can use so many different well, not so many, I guess not so many. It's like two, uh, you know, multiple ways to express yourself in that language. Uh, of course, the most famous Mongol is Genghis Khan, or as um, the Who Band says in their song, Genghis Khan. So there's that ha sound in there. Um, he's known for conquering nations, and the Mongols even held China for a while, even got into India. They left eventually, and those areas went uh, and they went back to, you know, Mongolia, and then the Qing dynasty, dynasty happened, and Buddhism actually spread to Mongolian, Mongolia. Um, they eventually got their independence from China with the aid of Russia in 1921. They were a satellite state of the Soviet Union until 1924, where they began the steps towards total independence and democracy. And they basically achieved that in the early 90s, when they shifted to a democratic system and a free market economy and away from the previously enforced communist government. So, with the Mongolian barbecue, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of it. There used to be a restaurant downtown that I used to go to in high school, and I loved it. It was really cool. Turns out it's not actually Mongolian food. <laughs> it's a stir-fry dish that was created in Taiwan in 1951 by Wu Xiaonan. It's not even barbecue since they cook it on a griddle, but it sure is delicious. It's just stir-fry. Uh, Mongolian food, uh, well, it's generally in the two category types, white food and red food. So white food is norm normally all nomadic made milk products. So white foods include urum, a thick layer of cream, Mongolian butter, arun, which is dry curds, Mongolian yogurts and things like that. The red foods, which is all the rest of the Mongolian meals, and those contain meat. So nomads of Mongolia, they usually sustain their lives directly from the product that they took and produced from domesticated animals such as cattle, horses, camel, yaks, sheep, and goat. People can cook soups, dumplings, and dried meats. Usually, they eat the white foods in the summer and the red foods in the winter. Shortly before the Rona locked down the world, that's where I learned about the Who Band. 
and um, they use traditional instruments along with the modern ones. All the members actually have um, bachelors in music, which is super cool. Um, they use, they also do overtone or throat singing. So I got to see them live in Fort Lauderdale in this uh, awesome venue. And I had been listening to their music and watching their YouTube videos so much. I was actually singing the songs. Like people were looking at me like, how does she know this music? How does she know the words? Because I was listening it, listening to it on repeat. Okay. This is some good stuff. Um, so they use, they use, um, where am I? I got lost in my little, uh, thing. Okay. So they use the horsehead fiddle, the Mongolian guitar, and the jaw harp in addition to the throat singing and regular guitars and bass guitar and regular drum kit. Um, so the horse head fiddle is actually the national instrument of Mongolia. It has generally, it's usually two stringed and uses a bow to play it kind of like a cello. Um, so it sits upright like a cello and you play it with a bow like a cello only it has two strings. It's the head is carved into the shape of a horse because they are the horse people, you know, and, um, they also are usually made by, they're handmade normally, and it takes a lot of skill and knowledge to make these instruments. I mean, it takes a lot of skill and knowledge to make these in instruments in general. So I am super impressed when I see like instruments, cause I certainly can't make a guitar and let alone strings to play them on. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. The Mongolian guitar is usually two or three strings and you know, you play that like any other guitar. Um, the article I found referred to it as a lute type instrument, which is basically the predecessor to a guitar. Jaw harps are the other thing. Um, that is not necessarily unique to Mongolia, but rather have no known origin. They're actually found all over the world in all cultures. There's even one uh, found in the Altai mountains of Russia back in 2018. And they, they believe that one is about 1700 years old. So 1,700 years old, and it's still playable. And that's because it's made out of bone, which, um, clearly it doesn't disintegrate like wood does or oxidize the way metal does. Um, so they can still play that one because it's made out of bone and therefore survived a thousand over almost 2000 years. Right. Um, but jaw harps are also well known in Ap as Appalachian cultural instrument in America. Um, which is, Again, that just shows how it's everywhere. It, they have found them in Africa, in other parts of Asia, just everywhere. And again, made of metal or wood or reeds or bone. Um, I'm guessing the more recently made ones of uh, wood and reed, as opposed to over a thousand years old, would have survived more. 
uh, overtone singing, also known as throat singing, is actually a tradition in multiple indigenous cultures around the world, each having their own, you know, spin to it. The Inuit of Canada are the first that really come to my mind right now with the uh, throat singing. It's kind of like that vocal, from what I gather and from what I have noticed, it's it's got a bit of relation to the vocal fry where you're saying something and it just goes, ah, it's, it's similar to that sound, but I can't throat sing. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that now. I would love to learn. I think it would be a really cool skill. Um, and it definitely is a skill. Uh, okay, back to music of Mongolia, because this is just freaking fascinating. The first rock band in Mongolia was is called Soyol Erdin. They were founded in the 1960s, and they were basically based after the Beatles. And because it was the 60s, they were censored and criticized by the communist government of the time. But they led the way for a lot of other different bands. And especially after the installment of democracy and liberal thought in the 90s, there was a flourish of artistic expression and the spread of all kinds of music throughout the culture from rap, reggae, boy bands and girl bands, and of course, heavy metal. There are multiple um, heavy metal bands that came before the Who band, but... Um, Right now, they're the ones that are popping around the world. So the lifestyle of, there's there's the steppes, um, or the pasture lands, what we mostly think, I well, I believe most of us tend to think of as Mongolia, uh, with the agriculture and herding as the main um, source of income, and they're mostly nomadic, or at least semi-nomadic. They raise livestock for food and milk and hunting and breeding. They have five main instruments, uh, not instruments, <laughs> five main animals that they tend to raise, and that's horses, sheep, goats, cattle, and camels. And so they're famous for gurs, or what we in the West generally call yurts. I don't know if they use that word. I've seen gurs being the main thing uh, it's referred to, so I'm going to go with gur, spelled G-E-R. In addition to the traditional lifestyles of raising, raising livestock, um, the country also does like mining, like copper and coal and metalwork and uh building materials, things like that. But in like big cities, Ulaanbaatar is the biggest city, but there are a couple of others, um, other large cities, but Ulaanbaatar is by far the largest with over a million people living there. Um, that's just like any other modern city, you know, Wi-Fi, cable, everything that we have. Same thing. Uh, the main fuel source, though, tends to be coal. And, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, they still teach the children uh, traditional Mongolian sports like wrestling, archery, and such. And it's, like, really cool, like, how they, I've, from everything I've read and seen, they, they're really combining and holding on to their tradition and their traditional way of life, but still combining it with more modern stuff. So, like, you see, 
people, you know, out in the steps herding the animals on motorbikes as opposed to always just using horses or camels or whatever. Um, the, so they're, they're really like a unique amalgam of traditional nomadic, shamanic, and Buddhist belief, you know? Um, the Qing dynasty brought Buddhism into it. I think I read... Um, Buddhism is the largest religion, but the second largest group is actually atheistic, um, while the second largest religious group is Muslim. So that's really cool. Hawks. Oh my gosh. I watched this one documentary a few years ago where they talked about hawks and how they use hawks for hunting, which is done, you know, it's done here in America. It's done in Europe, um, done in England. Like, I think most of us tend to think of it in a more Western way, um, with the rich castle living lords and ladies having their fancy hawks and their hawk master and go to medieval times and you sit and you know, uh, get entertained by the hawk master sending his hawk around the room while you're waiting for the jousting to start. Um, but that's actually a way of life for many people in Mongolia, hawking and using them to hunt for game. And they even have competitions. And so like the documentary that I, I watched, it was a huge competition and it wasn't just hawking. It was like a combination of hawking and archery, basically all the big, it was like, it was kind of like Mongolian Olympics, right? So you had the, the archery and you had the wrestling and you had the hawking to try and see who can get the biggest, the best, the fastest, you know, it's so cool. And this one girl that they were following, she had actually inherited her love of hawking from her uncle. And when he passed she inherited his hawk, which again, like so cool. And I think she won the competition. And of course she got like super cool prizes. I don't remember what they were though, but I do remember that they were, they were practical prizes that were beneficial to both her and her family. Right. Um, both in a modern sense, as well as just, um, traditional sense, you know, um, Unfortunately, climate change is having its moment in the Mongolian life. And like one way it's happening is in the steppes, the pasture lands. They are, they're, they're, it's not as cold anymore in the winter. Um, I can't remember if it's that there's like, their, their stalls are shorter and it's not giving the grass enough time to um, hibernate and germinate and regrow. So with a shorter thaw, that means there's less food for the animals. And But then there's also like they're over farming and they're over, um, over, what is the word? When they're cutting down, over, over logging? They're, they're basically overdoing it with cutting down of the trees. And if, you know, in ecosystems, everything matters. So with the modernization comes things that have unforeseen consequences. So there are areas that 
are starting to um, become more or become more affected by human activity and it's actually increasing the desertification uh, of the um, areas that have historically been lush and used for raising livestock. Um, overgrazing practices have also added to that, unfortunately. And when I mentioned earlier about uh, coal being one of the main uses of energy in the cities, um, according to a 2011 study by the World Health Organization, Ulaanbaatar has the second most fine particle pollution of any city in the world. So all that coal that they're using to burn, that they're burning to heat their homes and cook their food, it's adding to poor air quality. And it's also the largest, and poor air quality is also like the largest occupational hazard. As over two thirds of the occupational disease in Mongolia is dust induced chronic bronchitis or pneumo, pneumoconiosis which sounds like it might be something related to pneumonia. Um, so yeah, so there are organizations that are trying to help and um, they're doing things like bringing awareness to this problem to the people of Mongolia. Mongolia is working on trying to find alternative sources of energy that are not as destructive to the people who live in, live there, you know? And, um, but there are also people, uh, groups that are bringing, uh, air purifiers to the homes in the meantime, because you have to, you know, you can't just sit and wait for something to happen. You have to actually take steps now to help fix things for people now while you find a solution for later. So it seems like there's a multi-pronged near and far reaching set of solutions happening. So that's really good. And I feel hope for that. Um, and oh, another fun fact, this is where the Gobi Desert is located. And of course, Gobi means desert. So just like the Sahara and the Kalahari, in English, it's referred to what translates as desert desert, because humans love repetitive names like River Avon is literally River River. Lake Chad is Lake Lake. <laughs> We're so great at naming things in multiple languages, right? So in short, I just want to visit Mongolia. I think it's super cool. I think it is a very, very unique blend of cultures and traditions, and I just want to go and visit. That's all. Any places that you guys are interested in visiting, I would really love to to learn um, of any unique places that you you'd be interested in visiting, or even a mundane or well, no place is really mundane. Everywhere is cool in some way. What's a cool a cool thing about a cool place, or a cool thing about what most people don't consider to be a cool place that you find interesting? I'd like to know about that. Um, you can hit me up with those thoughts in the, in our Instagram, which is at indulging underscore curiosity. And I'm going to leave my, um, I'm going to leave my 
web pages that I found a lot of my information on in the show notes and hopefully you will enjoy learn or hopefully you have learned something and you've enjoyed it <laughs> and um, please give me you know some good vibe and please if you like this episode I'd love for you to tell people about it um, depending on what you are listening to it on please give me a thumbs up or a like or five stars whatever uh if you felt that was deserving of five stars and i will talk to you next episode